You'll find out soon. And if you do not have a Bible to follow along, please feel free to use one of the Red Pew Bibles in front of you. Again, Romans 5, verses 6 through 11. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we, we, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Yes, as Brian referenced, if you're visiting with us, we are in the midst of a sermon series through the book of Romans. If you're ever interested in catching up, um, all the sermons are available online. But would you pray with me as we come to God's word? God and Father, I just, man, I just so often am mindful of how, how little I can do and how weak I am as I wrestle with your word and how necessary it is for you to move in your spirit and by your strength. So I pray that you would move in us and teach us all as we as sinners come to your word, that you would work through me, a sinner, as I seek to preach it. Pray all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So, um, so there are ideal, ideas in the world that, that, that are so essential and basic that we all don't even think about them. We all just have these ideas about stuff, but that we didn't always have, and um, even though we feel like they've always been around. So like gravity, for example, right? I don't know if you realize this, but for a lot of human history, nobody had the idea of gravity. Now, of course, people got that like if you held up this pen, right, and you let go of it, it would, you know, it would go down towards the floor. I mean, that's not, you know, if you threw up a ball and stood under it, it's not like people didn't used to know what was going to happen. But, um, but they... They assumed the reason was it because of something that had to do with the object that was falling for most of history, that the pen wanted to move downward. And that was why, if you let go of the pen, that it would move downward. And that seems crazy to us, right? We're like, how could you believe that? But actually, that kind of idea makes sense because normally two things that aren't touching or aren't doing things to each other, they don't actually affect each other, right? Like if that symbol on the drum set fell down. I thought about trying to rig this up so that we could make it actually fall. But, <laughs> but like if, if the symbol suddenly fell down, you would assume that it wasn't me, right? You know, I mean, because I'm over here and I haven't been over there. We have the sense that generally you have to like touch things or interact with things. But, um, and so people naturally assumed that, um, that it was in the nature of heavy things to fall and light things to float because it had to be something about the thing because how in the world could the ground be doing something to this pen? right? That was how people thought until, you know, Isaac Newton came along and he had a really big brain and um, an apple probably didn't fall out of a tree actually, but he had the idea of gravity and the idea that actually maybe it was the earth somehow pulling down on the pen instead or rather that they're both 
pulling on each other. You don't need, anyway, I'm not going to get too specific about it. But that was this revolutionary idea, right? And it was so crazy that actually for a while people struggled to believe it and wrestled with it. But over time, as math and looking at the sky and stuff started to, to reinforce that, and as it helped explain especially a lot of stuff in outer space about like what keeps the moon spinning around the earth and things like that, it came to be accepted until now we have this big idea and it just seems second nature to us. And I'm tempted to keep geeking out about gravity. You could actually go on for a while. If you want to have a conversation about general relativity, you can come talk to me after the service. But, um, but I tell that story because, because big ideas like that, I think there's one of them in our text for today. That it's not exactly the point of our text, because in some ways Paul's just echoing what he's been saying about God's work in Jesus making peace. But he does it in a way that I think is trying to highlight this one big central idea. This idea that some of us maybe are used to and some of us aren't used to, but that as you really wrestle with it and as you see the way it kind of outward, it really starts to change the way we view scripture and the world. And so this morning what I want us to do instead of have like three easy points or something is we're just going to walk through uh, the book of Rome or this passage from Romans and talk about this big idea and just kind of see it in the text and then from the text talk about some things that Paul says it means for us, all right? And when I tell you this big idea, some of you are going to think, of course, and some of you are going to think, huh, and some of you maybe would even disagree, I don't know, but but I'm going to... I'll cut the suspense. Here's the big idea, all right, that I think is in this text, and then we're going to talk about it, all right? The big idea is that in the gospel, God always takes the initiative. That in the gospel, God always takes the initiatives. He's the one who is moving, who always makes the first moves. Now, before you think too much about that, because we're going to come back to that in a minute, let me just show you why I think that big idea is here in this text, okay? So start in verse 6. Paul says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. So this, Paul says, is when Jesus died. It was first when we were powerless. That word could also mean weak or helpless. It's the word that people in Paul's um, world used for people who were like shut-ins and weren't able to leave their homes. All right? So... So this idea that we're powerless, and he says that we're ungodly. While we were powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. So we're also immoral. We're godless as well as powerless. Some of you might remember back months ago when we were in Romans 3. We talked about this term. I said it was a good summary of how Paul views how messed up we are and our sin, and that term was total depravity. Total depravity. Depravity means our sinfulness, our, the way we're messed up and crooked. And total depravity doesn't mean that we're as bad as we could be, right? We aren't. We could be worse. But it means two things. It means, first, that everything we do is colored by our sin, that we can't truly be righteous because even the good things that we do are often done for impure motives or out of selfish pride. And secondly, we said that total depravity means that there isn't any part of us that isn't messed up by sin. So sin doesn't just affect our actions, but it also affects the way we think about the world. And it affects our our emotions and our bodies. It affects every part of us. 
And those things together mean that there's nothing that we can do in ourselves to drag ourselves upward to heaven. I can't do enough good stuff to find salvation. And that really fits with what Paul's saying, right? When he says we are powerless, that we are sort of weak and frail, and that we are ungodly, that even if we had the power to pursue righteousness, we wouldn't have the tendency to do so, in many ways is a simple summary of that idea of total depravity, all right? But here's the thing, because that's unhappy, that's a sad place to be, but Paul's point is that at that point, when we were powerless and ungodly, Jesus died for us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. God is taking the initiative while we are powerless and ungodly. Maybe you think that's forcing that idea in there. So keep reading. In verse 7, Paul says, Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. Which is just Paul observing that, like, if we were really great people, maybe we could take Jesus' death and say, okay, it still feeds our pride. We can still feel good about this. But we're not, right? And then in verse 8, he says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. So while we were still sinners, he's saying it a different way. Jesus died for us, not while we were seeking after him, not while we were trying to get our things in order. Jesus died for us while we were still in rebellion against God. And if you're not convinced yet, if you look at verse 10, he says, For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? So we're also God's enemies. And while we were God's enemies, actually fighting against God, he makes peace through the death of Jesus. While we are making war, God is making peace. That he is the one taking the initiative in our salvation. And in case you feel like that's just an idea that is being forced just into this text... Let me just give you a few other examples of this big idea because it pops up all over the Bible. So, for example, Jesus, talking about his mission in Luke 19, he says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Or here's Paul talking about it in his letter to the Ephesians. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Jesus, in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Or John 15, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. Or one of the most famous verses in the Bible, from 1 John 4, we love because God first loved us. We love because first God loved us. In the gospel, God always takes the initiative. He's always the one making the first moves. Now, some of us can have questions about that, and we're going to answer those questions in a minute. But first, let me just try to give you a picture of what that means, all right? Often, from our human perspective, we talk as if we are the active agents in salvation. We describe ourselves as seeking after God and trying to find him and talk as if he's kind of hidden somewhere and... um, We teach our kids songs like, I have decided to follow Jesus, and things like that. And from a human perspective, those are all appropriate ways of talking, 
right? There's nothing wrong with that because it's true that that's our experience. And we're going to come back to that in a minute. But what's striking is that the Bible almost never talks that way. And the reason is because there's another way of hearing those words that I think can creep into how we picture God's work of salvation. And it works like this. Here, I think, if you just did a survey of people in general is how most people picture becoming a Christian, right? So there's God, and he's up here in heaven, and then there's you, right? And you're kind of down here on earth, and what you do, what becoming a Christian means is that you have some experiences, and you read some things, and you talk to some people, and you think some thoughts, and you decide that you're going to shape up and kind of get up to God, right? I think that's how most people think about Christianity. Now, I think most of us know enough to say that's not right, okay? So let me give you another picture. Um, We are doing our best, and we try to change and believe and seek after God, but we're still sinners, right? And we can't get all the way up there on our own, so we kind of go partway. And then God comes down and makes up the difference. So grace is the gap between kind of where we can get on our own, and then God comes down and makes up the rest. That, I think, is a picture that's more familiar to us, but that's still not what the Bible teaches, right? Instead... So Paul doesn't say at the right time, when we were trying our best, Christ died for the imperfect. That's what he would have said if, what I, if we just said was true, right? But what he says is that while we were ungodly and powerless, Jesus died for us. So in the Bible, we're doing this is what we're actually doing, right? We're going in the opposite direction from God, and he comes and seeks and saves the lost. That it's a story about God pursuing us while we in our sin are going in the opposite direction. So that's the idea, that in the gospel, God takes the initiative. But I know that some of us have questions or struggle with that, so let me clarify a couple of things about that. So some people struggle with that idea because we think, what about all the stuff we're commanded to do, right? Because there is a ton of stuff that we're commanded to do in the Bible. We're supposed to have faith and to believe and to obey and to live lives following Jesus. And that's all true. So let me state the big idea a little more fully, because while this morning we're focused on it the way I said it, if I was going to give the full idea, it's this. It's that in the gospel, God always initiates, and we always and only respond. God always initiates, and we always and only respond. So there are all kinds of responses that we as Christians are called to have, all right? We're going to talk about a few of them in a minute. But, so, so we're called to do all kinds of stuff, But all of the things we're called to do stem from God's first work. Like 1 John says, right? We love, that is something we are called to do and that we're going to work at doing our whole lives. But we love because God first loved us. So if you're worried that I'm saying that we shouldn't do stuff, you're wrong, right? God taking the initiative doesn't remove a single thing that we're called to do. But the order really matters, In a lot of these things, getting the order right makes a huge difference to how we view what's happening. I mean, like, like if my mom gives me a hundred dollar bill and I say, thanks mom for the hundred dollars and I take it, like that's one thing. But if I say, thanks mom for the hundred dollars and take it and she didn't give it to me first, right? Like that's a whole different kind of action. The, The order on a lot of these things matters. And we're gonna flesh that out in a minute. But um, we need to start with God's initiative because it's the foundation and the fountain of good responses and healthy responses. So that's one clarification. 
And here's another one. Some of us just might struggle with the idea that God always takes the initiative because it doesn't always feel from our perspective like that's true, which is fair, right? God's actions often feel invisible. And there are many times in the Bible where we see people in Scripture wrestling with it, feeling like God isn't moving. So here is a couple of verses to chew on as we think about how God works in the world. From Ephesians 2, or one verse, 2.10, it says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ to Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So Paul's talking about us, and he says that we're called to do good works, right? That, that, that we are um, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. But he says that we're God's handiwork on the one hand, so before we're doing good works, God has been at work in us. He's formed us and given us the ability and created us and put us in a place where we can. And it says that he's prepared those good works in advance for us to do. So God's also prepared for us the things that we're going to do, right? We're still at work, and often that's all we can see. But God was at work before us, and God is out ahead of us, preparing the paths that we're going to walk. Or put it another way. I love the hymn Amazing Grace, which we sang this morning. And in many ways, that hymn was inspired by a lot of the things that Paul has been saying in Romans about the gospel. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Sounds a lot like recognizing Christ dying for the powerless and ungodly, doesn't it? I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see it is God coming and seeking us. As we are lost and we are blind. But, but, but then the, the beginning of the second verse, which is one of the best parts of the whole hymn in my opinion, is what really I think speaks to me about this. Here are the words. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. So what we tend to have is this sense of the second half of that. That grace relieves our fears, right? That we are afraid because of our sin, that we're grieved because of the ways that we're broken, we're hurt and wounded by the world. Our hearts fear and grace comes and relieves the fear. And that's true, but what Newton actually says in the hymn is that grace is also the thing that taught our hearts to fear in the first place. That it was actually God at work in us that showed us our need and taught us the ways that we were broken and in need of salvation, and grace that meets us in the midst of those needs to fill up what we lack. All right? All of which is to say that even the things that we do, um, even our responses are ultimately things that God has worked in us because he is the one who's taken the initiative. Maybe you have more questions about that big idea, which is fine. If you want to sort through it more, let me know, and we can totally talk about it. But rather than just dwell on all of those questions, what I want to do, Paul doesn't just sort of throw this out there as an abstract idea. He states it, he shows it to us, and then he tells us three different things that it should mean for our lives. He says this is what the, this big idea that it's God that takes the initiative should mean for us. And so what I want us to do for the rest of this morning is just look at those. The first one, if you look in verse 9, is that God is for us. God is for us. So in verse 9, Paul starts unpacking what it means, and he says, Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? So God's wrath, we've talked about this already in Romans, is not 
God doesn't have a hot temper. It's not that he's peevish. It's not like sinful human anger. God's wrath is the way that scripture talks about God's settled opposition to sin. His justice. That we do things that destroy the world. That people do things that destroy the world and hurt other people. And that God stands in opposition to those things. And that, as Paul argues earlier in Romans, given that we all are a lot more involved in that than we like to admit, we all do a lot more destructive things and a lot more hurtful things than we like to own. That that should leave us worried. But he says, since we've been justified by the death of Jesus, we don't have to fear God's wrath anymore. If Jesus died for us in the past, then in the present we don't have to feel like God is angry. Which is huge, but also seems kind of weird, because why does he feel the need to point that out, right? He's already kind of made the point that Jesus died to satisfy the demands of justice. And here's why I think he's pointing it out again here. When we fail to recognize that God is the one taking the initiative in salvation, we often get this picture of God, where he is sitting up on his throne in heaven, and he's kind of looking down at us, and he's tapping his finger, and he's like, Right? He's just glaring at us and waiting for us to get our acts in order. We work hard and we pray and we try to believe in all of that stuff. But if that's true, we can never really be sure that we're, that we're going to make it up there, right? That he's going to accept us. Because God is above us and beyond us. And we're still sinful and imperfect. And if it rests on us taking the initiative, then we always have to live in fear that maybe we haven't gotten there. And we still face God's wrath. But the gospel is not a story where God sits in heaven and glares down at us. The gospel is a story where we are on earth sinning and ignoring God and in rebellion against him. And God comes down here and he chases after us and he saves us. When we say that God takes the initiative, that's not just theoretically. That's saying that God has actually moved in history. And God has actually moved in your and my lives to draw us to himself. Or it's like this, right? If we are the ones that have the initiative, then we're like that high school girl who's got a crush on the guy, right? That my wife has described for me. You know, the high school boy, and we just don't know how he feels, right? And so we talk to our friends and pass notes and wonder how he feels. And, you know, we see him in the lunchroom, and he just, like, looks over his sunglasses, and he's like, hey, right? And you don't know if he likes you, and you don't know if he even knows your name. And if we're the ones who have the initiative, then that's what God is like. But in the gospel, as scripture presents it, because God takes the initiative, we don't have to wonder. Because God is not that boy, right? He's the boy who's standing outside your window with the boombox playing love songs and and the roses and the sign that says, I love you. Because he has moved towards us and chased after us. So we don't have to wonder where we stand with God. Because God has acted in a way that already shows that he is for us. And so we don't have to wonder where we stand. More than that, Paul also tells us that our futures are secure. That because God takes the initiative, our futures are secure. This really keys off the first idea, but if you look at verse 10, For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? So this isn't just saying that we don't have to fear God's wrath. This is saying that through Jesus' resurrection, we're somehow being saved by his life. And salvation in this 
verse doesn't just mean like not going to hell or something, right? Salvation in this verse means this whole picture of being rescued out of this kingdom of darkness, brought into God's kingdom of light and life. Paul's saying that Jesus' death got you some stuff, but Jesus isn't just dead. He's been raised from the dead. So if you get what the benefits of Jesus' death, how much more do you have this hope of salvation and a future? If salvation is our deal, if we're the ones who take initiative in it, then the future ends up feeling kind of uncertain, right? I mean, just honestly, if my future with God, if what it relies on is my consistent faithfulness and goodness and um, ability to always do what I ought to do, I'm in big trouble. (laughs) But if salvation is about God's work and my response— that I have hope for my future. Not because I don't have to do things. I am called to do things, right? It's not taking that away. But because God is the one who takes the initiative, because he's the one at work in the world, then I can have hope that he will keep on chasing me, even as I stumble and struggle. As Paul puts it in his letter to the Philippians, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So when you're fearful about the future, when you lie awake and worry because you know how complicated and messy your own heart is, you can find hope in the fact that God is at work in the world and in your life. He is working for your salvation, and so you can have hope in him. So the idea that God always takes the initiative teaches us that God is for us and that our futures are secure. But there's one last thing that I think Paul says it does, and that's both why I think it's so necessary and a part of why all of us, I think, can struggle with it, and that is that our boasting is destroyed. If God always takes the initiative, then our boasting is destroyed. This is Paul's ultimate application in verse 11. He says, not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We boast in God, which throughout Paul's letters, he he uses this language, and he doesn't just mean that we're saying good things about God. He always means, when he talks about boasting in God, boasting in God instead of myself, right? That's always kind of the thing that underlies it. I'm boasting in God, taking pride in God's power, rather than in myself and my power. The issue with an understanding of the gospel, in which I take the initiative, is that pride always starts to seep in. Here's what I mean, all right? Think about somebody that you've talked with about Jesus. Someone who doesn't believe. There is this tendency somewhere in the back of our heads to think something like this. We think, if only this person was blank, Then they would become a Christian. Then they would agree with me. Then they would accept Jesus. What you put in that blank is incredibly dangerous. It's incredibly dangerous. I mean, think about it. What would you put there, right? If only this person was more honest, so are you more honest than them? If only this person, right, just could see it, could, you know, could really grasp these truths, so are you smarter or more insightful than them? If only this person wasn't so attached to their sin, are you better than them? (laughs) If salvation rests in something in us, then there's always something that you can take credit for. But if salvation rests in God taking the initiative, then the math changes. 
Because God takes the initiative in the big picture through Jesus, and God takes the initiative in my life, and God moves, and I respond, and suddenly, I am not any more deserving than anyone else in any way. It is God's work that makes the difference. And so it is God alone that I can boast in. There's nothing in me that can fuel my pride. And I know that that raises some of the hardest questions about this big idea. Because it makes us wonder why God hasn't moved in this person or that person that we love. And, um, and that's a hard thing. And not something that we're going to have time to fully untangle this morning. Part of it has to do with God being just above us and beyond me easily being able to tame. And part of it has to do with the fact that, um, that we have hope in the fact that God doesn't always move on our timetable. And so simply because we feel like that hasn't happened yet doesn't mean that it won't. But that's a hard thing, and we can talk about that more if you struggle with it. But we need the truth, even though we wrestle with questions like that, because it does two essential things. First, God's initiative destroys my boasting in a way that forces me to be truly humble. Too often, humility, when we think about it in our world, looks like just this sort of like posturing, right? You kind of scrunch up your shoulders and you're like, well, you know, I'm not that great, right? But, but that's not true humility. True humility isn't just sort of play acting that you don't think you're as good as you actually think you are. True humility is having a view of God that so impresses you with his greatness and your need of him that next to him you are reduced to nothing. Which is to say that the way that you get true humility is by recognizing that everything we are and everything we have, our being and our life and our salvation and our hope, All of them come ultimately from God's work for us. I have no business being a Christian in myself. I have no business even existing in myself. All of it is a work of God's free grace. And at the same time, that gives us real hope for ourselves and for people we love. We wrestle sometimes with the fact that God has the initiative because, because we just want to change people, right? We want to just be able to come to somebody and force them to change. And that is such a normal human reaction. I feel that in my heart. But I also, in moments of honesty, have to just admit, that's not going real well for me, right? Like, like I don't think I've ever in my life, through my cleverness or argumentation or just cracking down on somebody, changed them, even a little bit. Not really. But my hope is that salvation and the future don't rest on my ability to change people. They rest on God. And he can do that. He can move hearts. He can give life to us when we're dead in our sins. He seeks us when we are sinners and enemies. And that means that we can have hope for anybody because it is God who we're ultimately hoping in. Not in them and not in ourselves. So in the gospel, God always takes the initiative. It's what Paul's trying to stress here in Romans 5. It's a big idea that I think is really important to how we think about Christianity. But as I think about how to sum all that up, I found myself thinking about the way C.S. Lewis recounts his conversion as a young professor in his memoir, Surprised by Joy. All right? Lewis isn't being theological, but in this memoir, he he recounts his youth and growing up and wrestling with different things, and his 
struggles with Christianity. And he says that, I mean, he doesn't, he's not interested in being a Christian as a young person. Lewis isn't. He doesn't care. He finds it all kind of preposterous. And from one angle, the whole book is this story of God taking the initiative over and over and moving towards him through friends and through ideas. But the chapter where he finally converts, Lewis titles that chapter, Checkmate which I already kind of love, and he pictures himself throughout the process as this guy who is really determined not to believe in this chess match, hopefully hopefully outmatched, playing against the Almighty and being beaten over and over as he tries to escape. He says, Soon I could no longer cherish even the illusion that the initiative lay with me. My adversary, God, (laughs) began to make his final moves. And then at last, a few pages later, let me just read how he recounts the final moment where he becomes a Christian. He says, You must picture me alone in that room, the apartment where he lives, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. (laughs) Right? This is God pursuing Lewis. God taking the initiative. But here's the thing. Right after what I just read to you, up to that point in the chapter, Lewis is, is using this really negative language to talk about his experience, right? God is his adversary hunting him. But then he says this. He says, I did not see then what is now the most obvious and shining thing, the divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet, but who can duly adore that love, capital L, who can truly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in, kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance to escape. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men, and his compulsion is our liberation. And I remember reading those words years ago, reading that biography, and both feeling a sort of truth in them, as it was at a point in my life where in so many ways my heart was determined to to wander, right? To turn aside and go my own way, and it felt like God just kept pursuing me. And so I felt sort of the angst that Lewis describes, but also the beautiful hope. Because how can we not rejoice that that is the story of love that we are in. Not a story where we clean ourselves up and work really hard and do our best and God sort of sighs and admits us even though we're imperfect, but a story where we are lost and far off and the Lord comes and seeks after us and saves us. It is God who takes the initiative and who calls us to respond. And that is the kind of love that we can hope in. So let's make it our hope. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, man, I just, I think about those ideas and I know that there's questions and all sorts of theologizing and stuff, but what always strikes my heart as I sit in this text and think about those things is just how grateful I am that this is the story you've enacted in me. That though my heart is prone to wander, still you have pursued me and drawn me over and over to yourself. 
I give you thanks in the love that would seek and save someone as lost in me, that seeks and saves those as far off and lost as all of us, and pray that we might hope in that love and find peace in the security that it brings. Pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you stand with me, friends, as we sing our Lord praises? How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, 
Amen, friends. It is so good to worship with all of you this morning. Um, If you're visiting or I haven't had a chance to meet you, please introduce yourself to me. Please join us for a time of fellowship. There's coffee and treats and stuff in the fellowship hall. Introduce yourselves to your neighbors if they're people that you don't know. And if you'd like to, also join us. We're starting a new adult education hour um, that will be back here in the sanctuary about 10.30 And um, it will be on Christianity and technology and a variety of questions that we wrestle with as we live in an age with all kinds of changing technology. We always end the service by declaring the Lord's blessing. And part of the reason for that is because in so many ways, as we said, right, God initiates and we respond. And the hope of that is that God pours out blessing to us, right? I don't, we don't go out with a command. We go out with the hope of what God has done for us. So hear that blessing to you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift up the light of his countenance on you and give you his peace this day and forever. Go in that hope. Amen.